Hello and welcome, horror hounds. Put down your crack pipes and hope you still have your feet attached to your body, because this is a crazy one. I'm Rob Sercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. What's up, guys? How you doing today? I, I have no response. I'm just, I was just happy that we got to do these films. Um, I think th- this was like such a fun, fun round. I really hope people listening actually watch these because I think, I think they're well worth a watch. They're just entertaining. How's your, uh, how's your horror life off the pod, guys? Any, any, any exciting things that you watched this week? I watched uh, Young Justice season four, or, or at least up to uh, the episode they're currently up to. It's a DC cartoon superhero show. Of course you did. Of course you did. Great. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, Decky, what my my wife Decky watched uh, last night in Soho, and she liked nice. it. I I did not mm. watch it, but she said it wasn't even really a horror movie. It was like the second half was more of a horror movie. It's absolutely a horror movie. I feel like it's a little. It's fantastical. I don't know. It's 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 horror, but I feel like it's fantasy for sure. Have both of you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I have to watch it now. I we'll have to put our reviews up on our Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, if you guys um, check out our Twitter and our Instagram, we're going to start posting our bone reviews of movies that we don't cover on the pod. Now, we're Cadaver Dogs Pod. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we post a lot of really cool shit. So please check us out, comment, and if your comment is good, most comments are not, but if your comment is good and you, you suggest something, we might actually cover it on the podcast. I think every comment we've ever received has been good, and I thank you guys for your comments. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but you can also email us at cadaverdogspodcast at gmail.com. That's cadaverdogspodcast, not cadaverdogspod at gmail.com. And if you email us and you send us your movie recommendations or suggestions, we might cover them, which we've actually done uh, recently. And if you listen to our Dawn of the Dead episode, that was a suggestion. And that's one of my favorite movies. So without further ado... Tangentials aside, Devin Shepard's going to kick us off on our first film, which I got to say, kind of one of my favorites. Of course, of course it is. Of course it is. (laughs) Our first film is the 1999 J-Horror Audition. What a perfect plan. Japanese filmmaker Aoyama will hold an audition for his new wife, disguising it as an audition for the leading role in his latest film. This is obviously how you find the perfect woman. Aoyama lost his wife about 10 years ago and has never dated another woman since. His son tells him that he looks awful, depressed, and that he should remarry. With that blessing, he holds the audition. Immediately, Asami catches his eye, a beautiful young woman with poise, etiquette, and mystery. Aoyama falls hard and begins to pursue Asami. They date for a while, and it seems she falls in love in return. But after they sleep together for the first time, she disappears. As Aoyama searches for Asami, pieces of her past begin to reveal themselves, and it appears Asami is not all that he believed her to be. Not as perfect, abused, a liar, a murderer? Who is Asami? Days from his journey, Aoyama returns home to find Asami waiting for him. She drugs him and, what details I'm sure we'll get into later, tortures him. Uh, what a fucking turn! Asami is not his ideal woman, she's his nightmare. Directed by Takashi Mike. Written by Daisuku Tengan. I think it's Daisuke. Daisuke Tengan. Tengan? Tengan. I'm not sure. Tengan. Guys, we're going to fuck up all of the uh, pronunciations in this. I am so sorry. I am really bad at other languages. I am like super fucking American. Um, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> My roommate is Japanese. He helped me with some of these, but I don't remember everything that he said. <laughs> <laughs> 
I tried. I, I, I did look these up. Yeah. And I, I like, I, I did study. I'm just my, my, you've heard me talk on this podcast enough guys to know that I have a problem pronouncing words. Yeah. I, I do want to throw in there. This is actually based on the novel of the same name by Ryu Murakami. Yes. Mm. I want to ask you guys, um, because I feel like it's a very complex movie. Uh, do you guys think that Asami's character is sympathetic? Yes, I do. Uh, in shorter words. Um, and I think she's sympathetic whether or not you believe the entirety of after sex, post-coital um, section of the film is a dream or not, if it's real. I think she's sympathetic in either case. And I think it's the the best indication of how strong the genre of horror is in allowing us to sympathize with monsters. And I think the best types of movies allow us to sympathize with monsters. We can sympathize with Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, whatever. And I really think Asami is a monster. And I think she's evil and she's horrible. But I think even in evilness, we can sympathize. Now, that might conflict with certain people who have like a black and white ideals about evil, which I do not. I don't think mm. there's any purity on either side of the spectrum. But but for me, I find her extremely sympathetic. And I, I think it's to the movie Strong Suit that it does dive into um, childhood abuse and difficulty with, with dealing with these um, evil, terrible things that happened in our past. So yeah, I, I think she's very sympathetic. And I think she's a great character. Mm, I think I think it's difficult to sympathize with her. Like I, I agree with you, Rob. I think they give us everything that we need to in order to sympathize with her. But I think we're still missing a key element of like, we have these moments in her past of her being abused, of her of her rela- past relationships with men, but I feel like what I'm missing is like what she feels about those situations. I think every time we learn something, it's from somebody else. Learn something about mm-hmm. Asami, it's from somebody else. It's from someone else's point of view. It's from, um, frankly, a man's point of view most of the time. And the only reaction that we see out of hers is the way that she treats Aoyama at the end. And so I think I'm missing that like connection that makes me sympathize with her a little bit more. It, like her character is like only like 70% there. I feel like we just like need a little more, like a little more roundedness of her. Right. If that makes sense. So, so I, I sort of disagree with you, but I just want to mention that I, I like that you mentioned uh, that it's coming from a male perspective because there, there is a reading of this film that the entire thing is coming directly from Aoyama's. I think I nailed it. Right. Aoyama's perspective. <laughs> So I'm I'm with Rob. I also think that Asami is sympathetic. Um, but I also think that what you're getting at, Devin, is something different. I think that you're referencing more about whether or not she's empathetic. That to me, the difference is that sympathetic means that you can kind of see where someone is coming from. You don't fully judge them for their evil actions, whereas empathetic is more that you are in their perspective and you are feeling what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um I'm definitely not feeling what she's feeling throughout the movie. She is not the perspective character. It is very fun to watch her uh, cut off uh, Aoyama's foot with like this look of sheer glee on her face. That is fun, but it's also horrifying, and I'm definitely in like his position during that That's scene. That's fun for you? What? That's it's so much fun. fun. <laughs> uh, I, it was fun to watch. It, it was a lot harder to watch when I first saw this when I was like 13 Yeah, definitely. Old. Uh, watching it now at 30 i was like okay uh yeah i can totally handle this it was fun watching my wife's reaction my wife's reaction was 
hilarious and it was a lot scarier than the movie because she watched it with sheer glee too and it was her first time seeing it oh my god oh my god oh my god oh right. my god you gave her ideas <laughs> no no it's so bad we, we, at work where some guy was showing me his bear spray the other day and like i was like oh fuck i, don't, I want to get it for my wife but then i'm like should i <laughs> all i want to say is that i actually highly disagree i think she's an empathetic character and i think Ooh. that that the reasoning for that is that we'll get into this more when we talk about what's real and what's not real but there's a reading of the film which i stand by that Aoyama's entire process is trying to empathize with Asami and that the pain he experiences in the nightmare is him empathizing with the pain he perceives her to have had in her past. And this is the way he perceives it. And that it's the other reading is that Asami is inflicting this pain on him as a way of her uh, showing her love and that she conflates pain with love due to her relationships with her uh, guardians in the past like her stepfather and whatnot so that this is kind of her way of empathizing with him by sharing the pain she perceived to have felt when she was younger onto him that's really interesting just like connecting on another level in terms of them being in love hmm i didn't i didn't see either of those uh, interpretations but now that you say it I'd, i'd be interested in going back with that that viewpoint i don't necessarily agree with the second one that she's Mm, did you say that she's showing him this is her love by abusing him? Yes. And uh, I actually have evidence for that in that the director said that. Mm. He also said that is his interpretation. And we do have to say that this is an adaptation of a previous work. Oh, fair. And he didn't write the film. And yeah, it's an adaptation of the book. Yes. And that's of the author. Uh, you can have an interpretation that differs from the creators. Yes. Yes. And I also think that if there's a movie open to interpretation, this is it. I think this is one of the... I think this is the way to do a movie that's open to interpretation. So can you dive in more with uh, with, with this explanation? Like, so she's using the torture as a way of connecting with him. Can you explain that a bit more? Okay, so I, I need to tell you what I how I think the movie uh, ended first. Okay. There's a stark cutoff in the film where they have sex and then there's the post-coital transition. Right. You mean at the midpoint, not when they cut back to them. No, no, at the midpoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, like postcoital distress is a real symptom that some men feel after sex, where they have sex and they feel bad about it. Like, like oh, do I like this person, etc. It's like postcoital depression, real symptom. So it's just funny that the movie goes off the rails right after the sex. So it, it, in my understanding, it's that the sex is real. And when he wakes up from the dream later in the movie... That's showing us, the audience, that everything, this whole like investigative section where she's insane and she has a guy in a bag and then she tortures him, all that's a nightmare. That what really happened is he proposed to her, they had sex, and then he woke up from a nightmare and she accepted the proposal. That's what happened in the reality of the movie. But in his head, he's misconstruing her past as this evil thing. And then... He's also relating to her pain because in the beginning of the film, he becomes attracted to her based on her essay that she wrote for this audition. And he's attracted to the perceived pain that she's had and he thinks he can relate to it. But in reality, he realizes he can't relate to the kind of pain she faced, that his pain of losing his wife is inferior to the physical and emotional pain she faced as a child. And then him trying to empathize with her through this nightmare is the realization that he is out of his depth in a way. 
not not to downplay the grief you have at losing a loved one, but it's not the same type as the physical, emotional abuse that you might face as a child. Now, this isn't my perspective. Right. I think this is the perspective Aoyama is projecting with this nightmare dream sequence. So I think in him doing that, he's connecting to her through his love language, which is an emotional one and a mental one. And by doing that, he's coming into uh, confrontation with the uh, physical and emotional pain that she faces as a child. So within the dream sphere, she's actually professing her love to him by sharing this moment of like mm. extreme physical anguish right. and pain. This is a further evidence by after she falls down the stairs, she kind of professes her love to him while her neck's broken and things sticking out, which is also gross and cool. It's, yeah, that's intense. Yeah. I love this interpretation. And I, I think like something that she says um, in the beginning of the film and something that we, uh, it flashes back to as well in the end when a lot of the lines are repeated. Um, she says, I want you to know all of me. Right. She she says she want she wants him to know everything about her. So I think that's really interesting that like this is a way for them to to grow um, and to bond even further. I mean, the whole movie is about like your perception of a perfect person or a perfect partner and how, um, you know, it's it's never going to live up to the dream that's in your head because people are people. You know, there are things that you don't know about them. I mean, the um, the moment that you were referring to, Rob, the original nightmare where Asami is waiting by the phone and there's a sack in her house that is moving and we presume that there's a person in there. It's literal baggage. Like it's literally like her yes. past in yeah. a bag. <laughs> and they actually, there are several other visual and audio cues that remind us of that moment throughout the movie that when they have sex and it just, it cuts away, but it cuts away as they're like rolling over and the blanket flows and it's like this, the same or a very similar sound effect to when the bag man moved mm -hmm. um, at the end of the movie when she's torturing him there's a shot uh, where he's largely obscured by a couch and the couch takes on like the same sort of shape as the bag as well oh, so there's all these cues that remind us of that moment I love how you mentioned the audio cue because yeah. I feel like that audio cue cues the transition like the midpoint of the film it does the genre shifts uh, I, I, I personally don't agree with the dream interpretation precisely because the first shots of the Bagman happen before that midpoint. So I, I think that it's difficult to imagine those being part of Aoyama's dream be, because it, it just comes before that would allegedly begin. Um, but I still like this interpretation. I think that's really interesting. The thing with the other thing with the Bagman that supports you a little bit in the uh, torture as a means of connection is that she keeps the men that she's torturing. She doesn't kill mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, she just, uh, what she cuts out their tongue. Uh, the original guy, a couple of his fingers and his ear, correct? Yeah, yep. and his feet, and his feet, obviously. On a similar note to what we started with, do you guys think that Aoyama is sympathetic? Okay, uh, I guess I'll respond again. Uh, yes, I, I feel like every character in this movie is sympathetic. And um, I think it actually speaks to the genre of the rom-com. Because the first half of this movie is the plot of a rom-com. Almost exactly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's so seedy, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but so are tons of rom-coms. There's like one where a guy pretends to be gay. There's there's usually a con that gets shifted. That that seems to be the plot of a lot of rom-coms. Even like Hitch, where like your con is shifting your personality, right? That's, that's like a staple of the genre of rom-com. And those characters we usually accept as sympathetic. 
And I mean, Aoyama just lost his wife and he really is just has no idea how to date. So it's Yoshikawa who has this grand idea to set up a fake audition and he gets him excited about it. Like at first he's like, oh, I don't know. And his friend like pushes him and he's like, okay, I'll do it. And even at the end of that, it's like the audition process, it, like it makes you think of a casting couch, but the way he approaches it is not like a casting couch. He actually is really trying to approach someone on an emotional level. I, I, I agree that that's the way that it seems, but there are moments in there that I'm like, mm, this is actually a lot darker. I mean, taking a step back and looking at it totally objectively, like there are issues with him holding this audition, obviously. Um, yeah. And the scene starts and what was what was creepy to me is like, yeah, I want to sympathize with him. But then the scene starts in the audition and the blinds slowly come down and it feels like a jail cell. Like there's something just so creepy mm. about the scene where the two men are so distanced by these women and they're literally judging them by their appearance and mm -hmm. they are like almost in, trapped in this room. Kind of like that Asami is in her apartment, her shitty apartment that's one bedroom and is just like sitting there by the phone. I don't know. I think the director presents it as him also being a monster in a way. And I feel like if we're sympathetic towards Asami for all the reasons that you said earlier, we have to be equally sympathetic with Aoyama because of that. If we're sympathizing with her because of her abuse past, we have to sympathize with Aoyama because of his loss. But they're both monsters in their own right. I agree with all of that. I mean, some of the questions that they ask in this audition are, uh, have you had loveless sex? Would you work in the sex industry? It's like, these are not questions that are appropriate to ask during any audition. Like, that, that is not relevant. But, yeah, I mean, if we sympathize with Asami when she's, like, freaking murdering people and cutting dudes' feet off, then I, I think that we do also have the kind of accept that Ayama can be a little bit sympathetic as well. Um, I also think that the movie is clever in that it passes off a lot of the harsher aspects of the audition to to Aoyama's friend Yoshikawa that he, Yoshikawa feels like more of the uh monstrous force in this but Aoyama is still going along with it even despite his hesitations yeah so I, I think uh it's definitely very seedy what he does but you know I mean like you can sympathize with some sort of seedy behavior it's not really not good you shouldn't do that but i think it also kind of puts a magnifying glass to the audition process in general because like auditions can feel like this and like yes. casting couch is a joke or a stereotype for a reason because in a lot of ways it was real and um obviously right. since the me too movement this has come to light so i think this film in particular is more relevant than ever almost because it's named audition and it, it, <laughs> it does flip the script but you know when you watch this it's hard not to think of like the harvey weinsteins of the world and whatnot it, it brings it to mind i think going beyond audition like that this is realistic of an audition for a film i think it's also realistic of an audition for a relationship like this mm -hmm. does kind of feel mm -hmm. like dating and there's this moment at the end that i really love where um aoyama's the one in the audition chair he sits mm -hmm. down we see the beginning of it during the audition where he like gets out of his seat and goes to Asami's chair where she just sat for the audition. And he like creepily touches it and like hugs it like very obsessively. Um, and it was a little off putting Ooh. at first, but then at the end he sits down in it and then we see it again, him sitting in that chair. So it's also, you know, she's also auditioning him for the role of husband. And I think that fits into what you were saying, Rob, of like 
they need to come to this mutual space where they understand each other and all the pain that they've gone through. And if he can handle that, then yeah, he can be her husband, which is why at the end she's like, okay, I've decided now. Like she's been contemplating it for a while or that she like didn't immediately have an answer. First, he had to experience her life. I love what you're saying, Devin, because this goes into a lot of my interpretation of the movie that uh, I, I basically take Asami's line. She says, even if I give you my entire self, you'll never give me yours. That Aoyama is looking for this perfect woman, woman, and his idea of that is someone who is completely submissive, completely dependent on him, and has no life outside of him. And then it becomes horrifying when she wants the same thing from him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there's actually... Uh... This is it's almost hard to not call this a dream sequence when he imagines being at uh, dinner with her and he introduces her to his dead wife. Oh, yes. yeah, that's, that's that's a good point. That's definitely true. <laughs> his uh, dead wife immediately rejects her, which is like his inability to share his heart with her. Um, mm. It's actually very similar to uh, some other films we had covered, uh, Hour of the Wolf, where the fear was of mm. like lo- losing part of your personality, the wholeness of your being through a relationship. And I think this also speaks to that fear of like him being afraid that her pain will almost like infect his mind, you know, in a way. And that like he doesn't want to lose part of his reality. But when you, your life collides with another person through something as serious as marriage or whatnot you do lose part of your identity, but you also gain a joint identity with this other person. You become so beholden the to like, person. Yeah, you become be- beholden to the entity of the relationship rather than the condition of your own ego, I guess. Yeah, I love that. And in a, in a way, that makes this whole movie sad of just like, this is the loss of individuality. Yeah, but she gains so much and she's aware that she's gaining so much through this relationship. If we, if, if we think that she didn't cut his feet off... <laughs> <laughs> if she got his feet off then got her neck broken i guess neither one of them gained that much but you know <laughs> what do you think um what do you think the role of the son plays in this relationship i think he is the other thing that aoyama has that um his aoyama's life outside of asami mm-hmm. that asami won't accept because she wants him to give her all of himself that I mean, I don't think it's fair to expect someone to give you all of themselves, but she is right that, yes, of course, a part of him is going to be connected with his son, and he is going to have a deeper connection with his son than he ever will with her. But he also wants her to give him everything. I don't think the movie touches on this too much, and I could be wrong, but I think I heard that in the book, uh, the son plays a little bit of a bigger role, and Asami is, like, vehemently jealous of the relationship which I, I don't think really comes up so much in the movie. I think um, it yeah. does. I, I, I think it's hinted at. And I also don't know if it's fair to say you would have a deeper connection with your son and with your lover. You have a genetic connection. But a lot of the time, an, an emotional connection is nothing really compares. But I think he and his son are, are pretty close. I mean... I mean, they, they talk about sex pretty much, which is interesting. I never had that relationship yeah. with my parents. <laughs> yeah. He's only even willing to date because his son encouraged him to. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It is pretty funny because it's like the reverse of usual. Like the child would go to the parent and ask for permission, and but instead his son gave him permission. Well, in almost a way, what I read it as too was his son is starting to date, right? It, it's very early on in, in that relationship for him. And I think it's the beginnings of like his son 
growing further away from him. So I think you can almost read it as he is going to start losing his relationship with his son because his son will start forming relationships with others. And in that way, he needs some sort of replacement, hence dating. And I think the son is like aware of that. So he's like, hey, dad, I'm going to go date ladies. So like you should uh, <laughs> you should also date ladies so that you don't have to fucking helicopter me. Thank you. Something else that occurs to me, and I don't know if the movie is actually commenting on this or not, but uh, if Aoyama and Asami were to get married, then she would be Shigi's stepmother. And she was abused by her own stepfather. And her aunt. Yes, and her aunt, but especially her stepfather, who yes. uh, sexually and physically uh, abused her. Right. And branded right. her. That, that I think uh, the branding is is uh, pretty much proof that she was sexually abused because oh yeah completely the the, air, the area of the branding is uh, at least in movie terms that's that's the area that uh, you know is usually cut that the camera shows you to show you that yep. worse things had happened right before then to back this up even further um, I've seen this movie a few times and the first time I saw it I wasn't really sure what to make of it the second time that I saw it. Uh, this is the moment that clicked with me where I suddenly figured out uh, what I personally would make of the movie. And it's in the beginning of the movie when he is talking with uh, Yoshikawa at the bar. And Yoshikawa asks him, what is your perfect woman? What are you looking for? When he describes someone who is mature, who has some career accomplishments, who sings and dances, it's he's he describes basically what society accepts as what a man should want in a woman someone who is independent who has a career of her own who has life outside of him and asami's the only girl at the audition who he seems even remotely interested in because she's the only one who doesn't fit that Mm -hmm. interesting he does not describe what he's actually looking for he describes what he's supposed to be looking for Right. I love that. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and he's he's really just interested in her pain. You know, it's in yeah. previous episodes we talked about the valuation of pain and it, it seems like this movie is very interested in that topic. It's their pain and their suffering is what draw the two of them together. Yeah, definitely. Unfortunately, Aoyama again, it's just out of his depth. He doesn't realize the depths of her pain. Never waste your pain. Yeah, don't waste your pain. Don't waste your pain. She also says, she has this great line, only when you know pain can you know the shape of your heart. Uh, yeah. Then she says, kitty, 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 and sticks a needle in his eye. <laughs> You're like, ah! I'm so glad that the first time I watched this was in a classroom, and it was just filled with all of these film students watching this, and like, so confused, just... A lot of us were just laughing at the kitty, 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 kitty. Like, <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> you watched this at NYU? Yeah. Oh, my God. What class? I think it was Storytelling Strategies with the uh, professor who was in Dawn of the Dead. Um, he was one of the zombies that took a pie in the face. And then after the movie, uh, I remember this because it was, like, one of the most interesting discussions we ever had. Uh, one kid, who I won't name because I don't want to shame him, uh, but he got into this, like, visceral debate with the professor about whether or not this is art. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, my he, lord. He didn't think it was art. He thought no, it was, he like, didn't. shock value? No, he didn't. The kid didn't. The kid was yeah, like, this is shock value. This is trash. And 
and and just sleaziness and <laughs> if that isn't wow. a perfect perfect representation of what NYU was like uh, I don't know what else is so uh our next film is you you guys are going to be like concerned about this connection you're going to be like it's a left turn off a cliff and like the car's tumbling it's falling there's flames everywhere and you're like how the fuck is this like the other movie give us the rundown <laughs> david what began as a birthday barbecue ended in a bizarre tragedy in Hohokus, New Jersey, bringing a quick end to the life of 21-year-old bride-to-be Elizabeth Shelley. Like wood through a mulcher, the girthful fiancé disappeared beneath the blades of a berserk mower that sent her personality raining down, instantly reduced to a tossed human salad, a salad that was once named Elizabeth. <laughs> That's actually how the story is reported in the movie. Uh, TLDR, his fiancé was killed in a lawnmower accident. However... Jeffrey Franken is determined to bring his beloved back to life, and what better way to replace the missing pots, <coughs> parts, than with the perfect body of a hooker whose pots, parts, he can simply buy. So he crosses the river into Times Square and arranges 30 minutes with eight hookers whose bodies he measures and judges, agonizing over which body to choose, but he has to choose. He can't choose, deciding he can't go through with it. Too late, however, as he's already placed a lethal form of crack, super crack, in their presence. And so, in a blaze of drug-induced exploding ecstasy, roughly eight hookers are transformed into pinatas raining not candy, but pots. Ah, super crack. Don't do drugs, kids. After apologizing, Jeffrey gathers up the remains and quickly decides which pots to use as he reconstructs Elizabeth, storing the rest to bring back later, of course, using a predicted storm to bring Elizabeth back. Only one thing, it uh, seems that Elizabeth's now part hooker, and her brain is cycling between the many personalities fighting within her brain. She knocks out Jeffrey, wanders into Times Square, explodes any man so daring as to embrace her confused advances, and kinda accidentally tips off the pimp Zorro, to whom the dead prostitutes belonged. Uh, even when Jeffrey manages to fix Elizabeth's brain, Zorro beheads Jeffrey, right before getting killed himself by the unused and accidentally reanimated pots of the exploded sex workers. Now it's up to Elizabeth to bring Jeffrey back with a few changes of her own. See, this procedure only works on female pots, so that's what she uses. This is Frankenhooker, directed by Frank Henenlotter, no pun intended. <laughs> I, okay, I feel like I have to say this right at top. We will be using the term hooker probably even though we should be using sex worker, I know, but because the title of the movie is Frankenhooker, I just want to say we'll be using the word hooker mm. yeah um it's yeah 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 and and so just like putting that on top because i know it will happen well now that you guys have been hooked into the conversation <laughs> um <laughs> but i wanted to ask if you if you do think that this movie actually takes a stance on sex work because it, it is such a huge part of this film obviously many of the characters are sex workers or hookers yeah i mean i feel like they talk about it a lot do you think there is a stance that it takes many of the actors are sex workers Oh, like in real life? They're sex mm -hmm. workers? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Frank Henenlotter uh, was getting people from SAG, but he was finding a hard time finding actors who would be willing to do nudity. Uh, so he went and hired a bunch of sex workers to do it, and now they're in SAG. Mm. Love it. And they're all great in this movie. Unionized sex work. I, I think the acting in this movie, good or bad, because my wife was like, oh, he has dead eyes and blah, blah. I think it's fantastic. I think it's perfect for this type of movie. And again, any movie under 90 minutes, 85 minute runtime. Fantastic. I loved it. 
Oh yeah, I should answer your question. Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely think it's, uh, it does like a civil service almost in pointing out a lot of the troubles of like sex work and it does it in a humorous way, but you know, anyone who takes any kind of like comedy seriously realizes that by making fun of something, you're also spreading awareness. So it, it does point out the, uh, like cesspool of like the hooker pimp relationship and how they get them hooked on drugs and stuff. And although it is making fun of the situation, it's also spreading the awareness of like this situation does exist and it's really bad. Um, I also like the uh, moral struggles that our main character has and how his yeah. solution is to drill himself in the head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree completely. I think that, I mean, the movie literally diverges with a clip of someone on TV, a woman, uh, advocating for legaling prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um and she she has an organization called Hooker, which stands for Hold On to Our Knowledge of Equal Rights. Love it, <laughs> love it. <laughs> um, but in its over the top way, where Zorro at the end of the movie he literally says that he's using the crack to control his uh his women, like the movie is making a point that prostitution should be legal and that the pimps are the problem and that legalizing prostitution would help to protect the women against the terrible men like Zora. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like the thing for me that really gets me every single time is that Zorro brands his ladies like that. That's crazy. And that, as David said in his summary, he literally owns them. And I think it says so much of sex work, but I think it also talks about just the bigger picture that the movie movie addresses about um, men and women and their relationships and their expectancies on each other. I think there is a, a broader idea that the film approaches about men owning or controlling women. I mean, obviously, Jeffrey is literally creating his perfect woman in his fiance. Like, that is a body that he puts together himself. He is playing God. And, and I like how he uh, measures all the different women and he tries to pick the best parts. <laughs> Talking about comparing Jeffrey to Zorro and owning the women, um, when he's uh, measuring the women and whatnot, at one point he uh, draws a check mark on one of their uh, buttocks. And that winds up on Elizabeth later in the movie. Yeah, I love that. And actually, that's such an interesting point, David, because he sees the brand of Zorro and he tells the woman who it's on, he's like, that's so ugly. I can't believe anyone's done that to you. And then he, and then he literally does, the does it. Yeah, he does the same thing. <laughs> well, I mean, he he with the check mark, not a... Yeah, I mean, he uses a Sharpie, but like it remains there for the rest of the movie. <laughs> right. And it's interesting just how we judge other men I mean, he's like judging this, he's judging Zorro because he's a pimp and he has this preconceived idea of that he's such a bad guy because he's a pimp, but then he doesn't realize that he is doing the same thing that Zorro is doing. Mm-hmm. I think it says a lot more. I think he is, he does kind of realize because it's, uh, he, he spends a lot of time struggling with um, the morality of the situation and he actually can't even come to deal with it until he lobotomizes himself. So I think that he is kind of like a sympathetic character. Wait, what do you mean? When he drills into his head, he like is actually removing his his moral compass because he can't bring himself to do this. Oh, I thought he was stimulizing his brain. He is stimulating think. parts of yeah. his brain. I think he was um, removing his moral compass. I, thought. I think you can kind of read it both ways. I mean, he obviously had some setup on his brain previously in order to be able to do this. So 
I think you definitely can read it that he has actively removed some morality from himself. I mean, he, he I, I think his most sympathetic scene is actually just when he's talking to his mom and he's literally describing how he is afraid that he is becoming uh, dangerously immoral. Right. And then she says, uh, you want a sandwich? <laughs> I, I I actually really like that scene because it's it's pretty it's a smart scene because she comes in really trying to connect with them. But then once they connect, it's like too much for her. She's out of her depth and she has to like back out. Yeah. 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 It's a fascinating relationship. And I couldn't I, I keep thinking back on it and like what the what the mother characters are supposed to be saying about um, female characters as, or about women as a whole. I don't know if I'm really like at a conclusion yet, but it is really interesting to see these these mothers being very, very nurturing, I guess in a way, almost serving their son um, mm. because he is a, as a man. Yeah. And actually that scene in particular reminds me of another Todd Slons movie called Dark Horse, which I adore and I don't think anyone else likes, um, where the main character has like a breakdown. He, he confesses his, his uh, darkness and his worldview to his mother. But instead of offering to make him a sandwich, she she like cries because he has bad worldview. Speaking on his his morality and and him struggling with it, I think a lot of the time too he's asking the question, uh, "Is is he doing the right thing?" Um, mm-hmm. There's this scene in the film where uh, I think it's right right when he gives everybody the the super crack or they steal the super crack. Um, and then all this debauchery ensues and the, 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 the boom box, they turn on the music and he's like, no, that's the devil's music. And then two women start making it. And he's like, no, that's so sinful. God did not put your body parts there to do that. Or, you know, he like starts rejecting. He becomes really religious all of a sudden. Yeah. What is up with yeah. that? I, I, I honestly don't think that's real character motivation. I think that was just funny. It's it yeah. No, don't. Funny. <laughs> You know, and, and there's definitely parts of this movie that are like that. No, yeah, he's 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 just very judgmental. I think. I mean, it all ties into him uh, imposing his self and his beliefs onto others, and kind of maybe. Um, and it also, I mean, it just sets up for when he's completely horrified that he's been a uh, given a woman's body that <laughs> it's all is thrown back in his face at the end mm. yeah that was a pretty funny ending uh, I, don't, I don't think it has like a stance on transgenderism or anything like that but i think anyone who just wakes up with a different body would be horrified um, although elizabeth takes it pretty well i actually think the movie is if anything it might even be uh advocating for transgender rights if anything um i mean you can read the ending as a bit of dysmorphia there is also a uh some form of trans actor in the movie the in in the credits he's just credited as a transvestite uh but i mean the terminology was not that advanced back then so i'm not sure if the the actor is actually transgender or a crossdresser or whatever but i think it's the first uh trans adjacent or trans actor who has appeared in any movie we've covered so that's more than any of the other movies we've discussed can say Really? I think so. I can't. I I don't know. Oh, I well. I can't think of the other forty movies we've covered already. <laughs> oh, off yeah. the top of my head, yeah. Do you sympathize at all with Jeffrey at all? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I think for the same reasons, this movie 
for the first half, it's pretty fucking sad. It's a guy grieving the loss of his loved one. Um, and you guys were saying earlier for that scene with his mom when he, I mean, you said it, David, you sympathize with him in that moment because of everything that he's going through and he's being really tortured. Um, so yeah, definitely. Grief is a fucked up thing. Um, and I can totally sympathize with wanting to bring someone back from the dead. Yeah. And I think, you know, like Aoyama, he tries to construct, he actually literally constructs his ideal woman out of body parts rather than trying to find her through an audition process. But it's really similar in the creation of the ideal woman and then how that can go askew. I actually find it a lot harder to sympathize with Jeffrey. There's still a little bit because he does seem very, very aware that what he's doing is terrible. Yeah. But also he really doesn't do much to stop himself and... It's pretty extreme what he's doing, so... <laughs> right, he says yeah. he is struggling with, like, killing another person in order to bring back Elizabeth. Then he winds up killing eight people. By accident. <laughs> yeah, they, they, he brings them back to life, too. They're just malformed blobs things. Can we talk about that scene? I, oh my god, it's so good. Just all the creature design of these body parts melded together to create ugh, these poor, poor women who were promised that they would be bring back to life. And if only they held on for a little bit longer. But uh, when they come <laughs> back and they get Zorro and drag him into the box and then also like grab the drugs at the end, because we assume that they're probably going to now stick him with the needle or it's a crack pipe. Make him smoke, whatever. Get him hooked on. Oh, drugs. I just figured they were gonna keep smoking. <laughs> also, that yeah. keep partying, but like, but now he's one of them and in the box. I love it so much. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, it's also like you know the effects in the movie are overall not that great, which I actually really like. I think that it uh, adds personality to the film that it has such cheesy effects. But in that scene, those effects are fantastic. So good. Also, the uh, the brain with the eyeball looks really good. <laughs> Which is a reference to the brain that wouldn't die. Mm, yeah. Is that a movie? I've never seen yes. it. Yes. And also one of the greatest scenes in this movie is the scene where all the hookers explode. I mean, we, we, can't, of we can't not talk about this scene. It is so fantastic. They spend so much time properly exploding these, these women. Um, costume design is amazing. I was reading an article in Morbidly Beautiful, and I actually couldn't find the author's name, so we'll link it in the show notes. Um, but they had a really interesting take on this as, you know, we talk about objectifying women. This movie obviously is about objectifying women. Um, and they talk about how, yes, it's it's a slocky B-movie, like, and it's very, very obvious the people that are exploding are mannequins or are fake but this author goes on to um, talk about how, like, it is an interesting representation of showing that it's not the real women exploding, that it's a version of themselves or a mimic of themselves mm. or, like, a literal – their little body parts of themselves and not necessarily the human yeah. that is exploding. That makes sense. They're they're reduced to literally just pots. Exactly. Exactly, pots. Yeah, they're like mannequins, too, because they're, like, in the store – window shopping for hookers the first time i watched this i found it surprisingly sad actually uh particularly when elizabeth is back and as the frankenhooker is walking around times square and she's like cycling through all the women in her head and just reciting lines that they've said throughout the movie 
like it 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 i don't know why it just really fucking hit me that first time i saw him like that is so sad (laughs) i feel so bad for her (laughs) maybe that's why i don't sympathize with jeffrey as much because i really i'm just like what kind of monster would do this wait why do you so why do you feel sad for her could you go on to explain a little bit more because the way that she's been objectified um the way that she has been objectified and transformed and he's spent so much time focusing on her body that he left her mind to rot Mm. and it it almost feels like she has some sort of dementia but no one even seems to care no one is really recognizing that she is uttering gibberish and like she is just going through motions Right, and that guy at the bar is like, oh, honey, yes, like, I'll just take you however you are. And so many people, yeah, I love that. So many people, when she goes on the train and she enters the bar, they're horrified by her face and by her body. Um, Someone calls out, is she diseased? They yep. can't, yeah, they can't see her past past her body, even when she's, when she's obviously going through a rough time and not yeah. saying anything that makes sense. No one's worried for her. No one wants to help her because she's wearing a bikini. Yeah. So so I, I was going to ask you, David, why you wanted to compare these two movies. And I think in a large part, we just kind of answered that question in that it, it's about this process of trying to create your ideal lover. Yeah, exactly. The, the scene of Jeffrey measuring the women is basically his own audition. Mm-hmm. And both men are ultimately punished by the women that they've been objectifying. I know both of these movies have been read as both feminist and as sexist, and part of why I want to cover this actually is because back in the top three Frankenstein movies episode, uh, I, I wasn't there to defend Frankenhooker, but uh, Devin, you, and Nora were talking about it as a sexist movie. Oh, that's yeah, th- and that was when I like haven't hadn't watched it in a few years, so I totally take that back. <laughs> so, I, I think the three of us all seem to agree that both these movies are feminist. Mm. I don't know if I would necessarily say they're not they're not misogynist. They're commentary on misogyny, but I wouldn't necessarily call them feminine. Like it's not like the the point of the movie is not to be like pro feminist. It's supposed to be like questioning misogyny. So I don't know if I necessarily mm. put those in the same field. But I agree that they're not mm, they're not sexist. The the point is that they point out what is wrong with us being sexist but i don't think that it's necessarily (laughs) sexist or not sexist does this make sense yeah no it does and i actually agree with you i think that um the term feminist is like so loose that it can be applied to like anything especially if you think of it just someone who uh agrees that women should have equal rights it's like okay in that case pretty much all of us are feminist but when you're talking about like real feminism or like first wave versus third or fourth and you get into the specifics of it then it's a lot more difficult to apply that term to other films and like frankenhooker it's hard to call it a feminist movie because it does glorify it does wallow in this like extreme nudity and stuff which i totally fucking enjoyed and honestly my wife enjoys too which is cool but you know there's like a lot of boobs and we're supposed to like the boobs and that's it's kind of hard to say that it's feminist which just like oh guys gawk at these boobs Whereas Audition, I I see the argument for Audition a lot more clearly, but I think being critical of male gaze isn't necessarily like uh, promoting feminist ideals. Yeah, I agree that like 
the definition of feminist in this sense, I think, is what, or at least what you're getting at, David, might be that, like, there's a point that it has a statement about feminism. And I don't think either of these movies really do. The boob thing is interesting because I think, right. yeah, you're supposed to, like, it's interesting that you say we're supposed to like this, but I think that's the point is, like, you recognizing movies as, like, putting boobs in your face and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm meant to like this and, like, looking at how entertainment and films have, like, shaped your view of women and women's bodies. Like, there's a reason why there are so many boobs in that film. It's to connect you more with, like, how you're viewing women and how you're viewing them and how you're viewing their bodies. You really think it's that deep of a commentary? I kind of missed it. I, I kind of, it kind of felt like, uh, like, <laughs> B-horror-like B thrills, you know? Like when you watch Game of Thrones and there's like a sex scene for like no reason, you're like, oh, just because we want to see sex, you know? It's like wanton nudity, and in a lot of parts it kind of was wanton. I mean, yeah. there's definitely a way to put it where you could say that it is kind of uh, relishing in all of the male gaziness aspects, and then just throwing in some, oh, this is actually bad, just to sort of make it okay. Sure. These movies are definitely they're they're not empowering the women. But I, I don't know that that's the only way for a movie to be feminist. I mean, both of these obviously have male directors. Takashi Miike has literally said that he does not think Audition is a feminist movie, or at least he did not intend it that way. But a lot of people have read it that way. <laughs> I, well, I think Asami, you could definitely read as being empowered in the movie. I mean, she literally has complete control over her torture victims. Oh, yeah. And, and empowered in a way, too, that she... Um... She has control in the relationship a little bit. Um, but I think beyond that, I mean, empowering isn't just like that she's in charge. It's also that um, she's just not a weak character. You know, she's mm -hmm. not like she doesn't succumb to anything. She is in control of her emotions. And yes, like or, and she's in, in control of her behavior. And yeah, her behavior is torture. But that is her choice that she makes. It's also a way of her... Um reliving her relationship with her stepfather and taking control of that because she she's recreating these men in the image of her stepfather but with her in the the pilot seat right yeah i don't know if it's her choice to torture them you think she's compelled yeah she right she clearly is ill i don't know if calling it her choice is the right way to describe it okay fair but it she she does it no one else she doesn't like succumb to anything and no one else tells her to do it. Like it, yes. she's, she's in control of herself. Well, yeah. in so much that she can't be. Yeah. And there's also a lot of planning involved. Like it's not like she just like loses uh, herself in like the moment. These are highly calculated, planned uh, endeavors and, and murders. It's almost like it's obviously not an accurate depiction of illness or psychology, uh, but it's almost similar to Dexter Morgan, where there's like the dark passenger inside her, and she must kill, or she she or nothing really. She just she has to kill. It's like she's addicted to it almost. Mm. Well, you know, it's not about the killing though. It's about the uh, being in charge of the relationship. I think. Mm. But then you know, again, if you if you have my reading, it's her way of expressing her love for other people and. You know, a collusion of minds, if you will, through suffering and pain. Whereas in Frankenhooker, I think it is absolutely Elizabeth's choice in the end to bring back Jeffrey as a woman. <laughs> well, I, she really had no other option. And I, and I do think it was just like a last she gag. She could have left him dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but she loved Jeffrey 
And I mean, he did bring her back to life after she killed herself. So like, does she love him? Of course, they were going to get married. She even said she loved him before. At the end of the movie. Yeah, no, in the beginning of the movie, she's talking about how much she loves Jeffrey. She loved him enough to let him staple her stomach. Which is so fucked up. And her friend's like, you're crazy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, no, I I think there's a lot of indication. That's why it was kind of a weird ending for me, like. She her it didn't really fit in line with her character the way she was talking to him, but I get it. It was just for the gag. The same thing as when he's like reciting the biblical stuff as he's being held down by all the hookers. It's like you know that's just kind of like gag. See, I read the end that she is kind of mocking him. Uh she's definitely mocking him. Yeah, but yeah. That doesn't mean she doesn't love him, and it's also her only avenue of bringing him back to life. Right. It's also ridiculous. There's no way she would have been able to pull that off. Yeah, where'd she get the body parts from? She got it from the bin. All those parts were reanimated. Maybe not all of them. There were only a few monsters. Yeah. We're definitely missing some pieces. They did smoke the exploding crack, so I assume they just exploded again. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Uh, There's actually a really important moment in Frankenhooker that I completely forgot to mention. This makes it so much sadder and makes Jeffrey so much worse. When he's going through the bin of all the feet, and he's picking what's the perfect leg to use, he pulls out one foot and he goes, how's this get in there? And throws it aside. That's Elizabeth's actual foot. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Oh, that's funny. He doesn't use the parts of her that he actually has, except for the head. No, yeah. It's because, I mean, throughout his uh, his sketches of Elizabeth, he's constantly like, I just want to make you the woman that you always wanted to be, um, which is not necessarily who she wanted to be. I think it's what everyone told her she should be. I mean, yeah. our introduction to yeah. Elizabeth is her eating pretzels and people telling her, uh, <laughs> slow the fuck down there, girl. And everyone's like, oh, what about your diet? And they're like telling her essentially that she needs to lose weight. And she's like, but I just want to (laughs) eat. She's also like a really normal weight when she's she's literally wearing a fat suit in the beginning. Oh, it's okay. But she's like still not fat. Um, And yet, I don't know if you guys caught it when I read the news report, but even in the news report, like the girthful woman, it's like, what? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's the bee horror for you. Is an extreme level of fat shaming of a woman who is not fat. <laughs> I, yeah, it's very funny that the uh, the choice was to give her such a slim fat suit. Like I didn't even realize she was overweight at all until they said it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's interesting in the viewpoint of trying to sympathize with him and and seeing him struggling with his misogyny because it's also how he's been told to view a perfect woman. I mean, the mm. the images that he collages together to show Elizabeth's head all the different body pipes that she could have, they're all pornographic images, all images of what we've been told is the perfect female body, um, the one that people are most attractive to, which, of course, we then see with him choosing um, sex worker body parts is like these are all perfect women in a man's eyes. And it's all like how he's also been told this is the perfect woman and he can't accept Elizabeth's body for for what it is. She must want to be like these other women she must right that's what we've been told definitely there's no point in a movie where another character actually says hey elizabeth you know you're not fat right like no one says that to her at any point so yeah i definitely think that you're onto something with it talking about how society has pushed this view upon him just like how in audition it is uh yoshikawa who pushes this idea onto aoyama right and and what you were saying earlier in the episode as well david of uh aoyama wanting to have this ideal woman and then realizing that that's not what he wants at all the way that he describes her is not the person Mm. that he actually wants i think it's the same thing with jeffrey yeah 
And both of them want something completely unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. We've compared both movies. We've talked about both movies. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's our bone review section where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week is Devin Shepard. All right, audition. This movie, you could read it so many different ways. And for that, it's really powerful. And I've really loved our discussion about it because I think it's it's opened my mind to to look at it differently. And also because there are so many interpretations of it, I think that it shows really strong direction. It's just a captivating film that that stays with you. Uh, and so for that, I think it's I think it's it's really good. I'm gonna give it two bones. Wow. Whoa. I think it's a it's a fine movie. I think it's fine, but it's not necessarily like a film that I'm gonna be like you have to watch this movie i think you can you can watch this movie um the horror factors at the end with the torture fucking terrifying up to that point it is a slow burn and it is it is a romance film and it's fucked up but um i don't i don't think it held up to the hype as much for me so two bones frankenhooker on the other hand i i I love this movie i it (laughs) from the very first time i saw it i fucking loved it I tell everyone they need to go watch this movie. It was recommended to me by Bill Murray, not in person, but in some interview, someone asked him what his favorite movie was, and he said Frankenhooker, and I was like, must watch that film. (laughs) Really? That's also on the box. That's how they promote it on the box. They're like, Bill Murray says it's the best movie of the year. (laughs) He's fucking right. It's fucking good. There's so much more to it than it just being like a fun beat horror film. Uh, I, I, I love it so much. I think it's really smart. I think it's really well done. I think the the costumes are great i think the makeup is great um the performance of elizabeth is not great up until the point that she but i think done so on purpose but when she is an actual monster i love her interpretation of an electric woman essentially or an electric frankenstein's monster uh it's really good so three bones for me three bones david b jacobs uh yeah i love both these movies i have nothing bad to say about either of them audition is absolutely fantastic i love how it starts as a rom-com and then becomes a horror movie and kind of in doing so exposes the horror of the rom-com and throws all of aoyama's uh more subtle misogyny right back at him his torture at the end is basically just a mirror reflection of his own subconscious objectifications uh he he wants a woman who's a blank slate well this is what that would actually look like three and a half bones wow frankenhooker's a fucking riot it has super crack in it (laughs) (laughs) and really like patty mullen's performance in that last half hour is just so somehow really impactful for me I, I don't even know why. I just, I, I, I find it so fascinating and mesmerizing and sad and hilarious. I'm giving that one three and a half bones as well. Yeah. Wow. I've been going back and forth between three bones, three and a half, but let's three and a half. Woo. Okay. This might be the first time that my reviews are really close to David's. Uh, I'm going to start with Frankenhooker and he took the words out of my mouth. Super crack, three bones. <laughs> really really funny i think it has just such strong direction i feel like every decision made even though maybe the acting wasn't a list or anything else was just the correct decision so super crack amazing directing really funny 
and it's 85 minutes. Basically all my favorite things in a movie. Oh, and plus <laughs> tons of boobs. Love boobs. Boobs is like two good things. Great. Uh, now we're going to talk about Audition. And Audition holds a special place in my heart. I, I really like this movie. And it's the shock value just always gets me. This time around, it wasn't the kitty kitty. It was the throw up in the doggy bowl. That was really gross. <laughs> the genre flip is so strong and so interesting. And it is a very slow burn. But I think the acting's fantastic. I really like Asami. And when the movie came out, there's some controversy. Some people thought she was terrible. Some people thought she was fantastic. I uh, err on the side of the latter. I think she's very, very good in this. And I think she's very well cast just for her physicality alone. So I agree with David. Three and a half bones. It is just shy of masterpiece. And on a different day, I might give it four bones. Wow. Nice. <laughs> I feel like I maybe should have upped it a little bit more. Whatever. It's fine. No, no, no. You, you're allowed to have a different opinion, Devin. No, I know. But I'm usually the one with the eh, different opinion. I don't you guys care. should stand by your bad opinions. I'm okay for that. I just don't know how to rate anything ever. Um, anyway. Uh, there, I mean, you're you're not on the level of the, the woman who walked out of the screening and uh, scowled at Takashi Miike. You're sick. And he's like... <laughs> right. Cool enough. You know that guy's directed like over 100 movies. Crazy. He's yeah. insane. Uh, he shot Audition in three weeks, which is one week longer than normal for him. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Frank Hanwater, on the other hand, has like basically three movies. And all three of them are fantastic. Rob, have you seen his other movies? What are his other movies? Uh, Basket Case and Brain Damage. Oh, I love Basket Case. And we will cover them. We will cover them. Okay, so that's it for this week, guys. Take your prosthetic feet and put them back on and leave, I guess. I'll see you (laughs) next time. I love that can apply to either movie. Want a date? Need some action? <laughs> <laughs>